Good morning. Good morning. Two people in front. Okay. Okay. That's good. To those of you who are English speakers, the last song has something to do with staying in the shade of, of God's presence. Mananatili sa yung gliling. Now we're doing a series called What We Do While Waiting Matters. So the understanding is that from the time that Jesus ascended to heaven to the time that he's coming down to earth, this will be an undetermined amount of time. So this is a waiting game for all of us. No one knows when he's coming back. There was no set hour and date. The scriptures did not say, Jesus did not say. No prophets ever prophesied about this exact hour and date. So we are in the waiting game to his second coming. And what we do while we wait matters. Do you agree? Cool. When we were young, we used to play this game. It's called the boat is sinking. Group yourselves into two or three. You cannot group yourselves into one. <laughs> the boat is sinking. Group yourselves in, you know. And we've had a lot of fun with this game. It's fun when we grab people by the hair just because we want to survive. So we get you know, people to our group. Group yourselves into two and we grab anywhere we can. But now that we're grown, think about this. Look at the television. Look at the newspaper. Look at what's happening around the world. Looking at the world's affairs, the wars, the famine, the supply chain, the unemployment, the pandemic, the political ambitions, the greed and entitlement around the world, all this corruption is up happening. If the world is a boat, literally, we can say that the boat is sinking. Now, Revelation chapter 8 and 9 is ominous. It doesn't paint a good picture. This is somewhat scary. So, we have two choices here. Either... We can just forget about this, forget about all these things that are happening and be oblivious to it and just look forward to vacation, do your Christmases, increase your portfolios, do whatever you can, but just forget about it. Or we can put our act together, we can prepare like how we are preparing for the incoming category for Hurricane Ian and prepare for the coming of Jesus. So what we're saying is that what we do while waiting matters. Why? Because the world is about to sink. Now, I'm, I'm going to try my best not to scare you, even though Revelation chapters 8 and 9 are both scary, but I'm going to try my best to give it a, you know, give it a smooth transition. I want to pick it up from the story of Exodus. Now, if you have read your Bible or read your Bible, there's a book in the Bible, it's called Exodus, and starts with the story of Israel. It says that the tribes of Jacob, the 12 tribes, went to Egypt and they prospered there. So if we pick up the story from Adam and Eve all the way to Israel, God said, go and multiply. And they multiplied. They were happy. They were growing. They were multiplying in Egypt. They were good. But the next ominous thing that happened is that the Bible said the king or the Pharaoh died. The one who died did not know Jacob or Joseph. And the new king was felt a little threatened by the growing number of the Jews. 
And so he thought if the Jews will grow more than the Egyptians, then if they rebel, we're going to be in trouble. So what he did in a true fashion, in a true Nazi fashion, he devised a plan to do eugenics for the whole nation of Israel. This is a calling and controlling the population. So first, he subjected the whole nation into slavery. And we know that, that it happened for 400 years of slavery. And when it did not work, because the Bible said that the more they are oppressed, the more they multiplied. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. But it, when it didn't work, what he did was to mandate the murder of all the Hebrew boys in Exodus chapter 2. This is very interesting to say the least. Let me give you the summary of what happened in the story, Exodus chapter 1, verses 11 to 14. It said, they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. It's like a repetition. So in this passage, you might probably uh, hear you know, repeatedly service, hard work, oppression, slavery. Repeated everywhere here. But the point of this is that it made their lives bitter. Here's the thing. If we're going to check what is God doing during the 400 years when Israel is being oppressed, here's the summary of the scriptures in Exodus chapter 2. It says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. God remembered this covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is very interesting. For 400 years, people were crying out, groaning, asking for help. And then at the very end, it says, God heard, God remembered, God saw, and then God knew. Now, what's interesting here is that the last phrase, God knew, is not really God was informed. And he was not unaware. He was unaware. Now he's informed. It's not really that. This God knew is more like he knew and he acted on it. Now, the best explanation I can give you is if you're married and your wife one day says, do I look good in pink? You don't answer no or yes because she already knows she looks good in pink. It's her favorite color. It's her way of saying subtly, I want a new pink dress. Correct? You don't say, oh, you don't look good in pink or you look good. No, that's her way of saying, give me a new dress. So the word God knew is a, a verb that means or connotes God knew and acted on it. God saw, God remembered. God heard and God knew and acted on it. That's, that's what it means in this context. So let's put this in perspective. The passage is a summary of the state of Israel and the sovereign plan of God. But there are so many things happening here. If there's one thing that I can tell you is that it happened for 400 years. Now, 
two days is, is okay. Maybe one year is okay. But slavery for 400 years? I mean, I can think of the Philippines have been slaves by, by Spain for many years. Maybe it's not the same. This one is hard labor, oppression, abuse, 400 years of slavery. Now, to our curious minds, maybe you're asking now, if the people of Israel are God's chosen people and God loves people, what was God doing during the 400 years? Why did God have to wait to respond at the end of 400 years? And if you're reflecting on this personally, if you have a prayer request, if you've been asking God for something, for help, rescue, or whatever, maybe you can ask the same thing. What is God doing while I'm suffering? What is God waiting for? What's taking him so long to respond? Now, I want to answer that question. Let me give you an answer to that based from what Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, Jesus gave us a new definition of the word blessed. And when we hear the word blessed, immediately what comes to mind is Adam and Eve. Go and multiply. Blessed. Right? Or Genesis chapter 12. God told Abraham, I will bless you. I will make your name great, famous. I will make you rich. I'll make you famous. And anyone who bless you, I will bless. Anyone who curse you, I will curse. Blessed. Or maybe the end of Deuteronomy that says, I will bless you. I will increase your crops. I will make you, uh, I will bless what you do with your hands. Or maybe the prayer of uh, the benediction of Aaron. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. All those kind of blessings. But when Jesus offered this new definition of the word blessed, it's the exact opposite. Exact opposite. Listen to Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. This is what Jesus said. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Exact opposite. This is not the blessing for prosperity. This is not the blessing for wealth. This is something else. This is suffering. This is what Israel went through for 400 years. Now, let me be clear on this. What Jesus is saying is that to his followers, you are blessed, you are favored, you are happy when you are persecuted on my account. <laughs> it doesn't sound good, but that's what he's saying. He's saying is that it's an honor to suffer with Jesus. That's the idea of blessed here. It's an honor to suffer with Jesus and for his kingdom. But the operative word here is falsely. Say it with me, falsely. All right. If we are suffering falsely, then Jesus said we are blessed. That means if we are persecuted for our faith, we are standing up to our convictions, we are speaking for the truth, even when it hurts, we are blessed. But if we are persecuted because you love to gossip or you have an attitude or you're a difficult person, then it doesn't count. You're not blessed. It must be falsely on his account. We only have the honor of suffering with Jesus if we are persecuted falsely on his account. If we skip Matthew chapter 5 to the next chapter, chapter 6, before Jesus even talked about financial literacy in chapter 6, he gave us a, a model of prayer, a sort of a prayer that we can pray while we're suffering. So the idea of this prayer is that this must be prayed in the context of being blessed, and being blessed is suffering. So when you pray, he said, you say, Our Father, who are in heaven, 
holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Which means, whatever you plan to do, God, or decide to do, you are the boss, you are in charge. Are you still with me? God is in charge. And because of that, I submit to your wisdom and decisions, even when it costs me to be persecuted falsely on your account. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, which means... You are in charge, and whatever you plan up there in heaven, I also desire that it will also happen on earth, here. And what that means is that I'm aligning my plans to your plans. In fact, I'm abandoning my agenda, and I'm going to go with your agenda. Whatever your agenda in heaven, also on earth. And I want that for me too, because I'm with your kingdom. Which means when we pray, we are acknowledging that God does everything according to his plan. God has a plan. And if God has a plan, God has a timetable. Say it with me. Timetable. Now, this is a, a, a kind of hard concept to deal with. Because sometimes, or, or should I say many times, we want a response that's quick. See, God has a timetable. When we say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. We are acknowledging that God has a plan and he has a timetable. And this kind of prayer is not really an individual prayer. This kind of prayer is a corporate prayer. Listen to the words. Our Father, it's our. Forgive us, lead us, deliver us. It's a prayer, a corporate prayer that the church, the persecuted church, praise. It's not your individual prayer. So understanding that being blessed is being persecuted falsely on Jesus' account and understanding that there's a timeline to everything, going back to the 400 years of suffering of the Israelites, if they pray this kind of prayer, they're actually praying that God will speed up his plans for his kingdom to happen both on earth and in heaven. And while they are being oppressed for 400 years, as they pray and wait for rescue, those 400 years of God being silent doesn't mean that the Israelites are not praying hard enough. Oh, believe me, they've been praying hard enough. They've been groaning. They've been crying. But it doesn't mean that they're not praying. It doesn't also mean that God is not interested in their prayers, that God doesn't care, that God is not capable of responding to their prayers it just means that god is on a timetable he's on a schedule because he planned it long time ago now the silence of god in exodus for 400 long years was due to the fact that he had a timetable and how do we know this because genesis 15 says that god made the solemn promise to abraham and gave him a prophecy from the time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Exodus in Egypt, 400 years. Since Abraham, he gave a prophecy. And he told Abraham that your descendants will be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. It's already planned long time ago. And that means during the 400 years, God is in charge. He knows what he's doing. Nothing random is happening. See, here's the thing. If God has a plan and he is omniscient, therefore he knows everything. If he knows everything and he's eternal, therefore he doesn't have memory loss, just, just like us. He doesn't grow amnesia in his brain. He doesn't forget. He doesn't need to put in his schedule. 
Ah, after 400 years, I'm going to come back and remember my covenant. No, he knows it. He's on schedule. He's omniscient as he is eternal. That means he had a plan, and his plan includes timetable. And it wasn't just the rescue of Israel. It was the justice and rescue of the whole world. It's not just about Israel. It's also about us. So imagine the church here. I'm going to transition to the church. So from Israel to the church, Israel, 400 years of persecution. The church is now undergoing persecution. The followers of Jesus in the first century were arrested and imprisoned. They were maliciously executed because, because of their faith. They did not give in to the political demands of the society. They maintained their allegiance to Jesus. And you imagine them thrown in prison, bleeding, and they're praying, rescue us, rescue us. And there was no rescue. The response of God at this point is silence. How does it feel if you're asking for rescue and there's nobody on the line on the other side? Have you ever tried to call 911? It's fast. Denny, is it fast? It, in 10 seconds, you, you will get a response. But they have been praying for 400 years. The first century Christians were praying for rescue. But there was silence. Here's what Revelation chapter 8 verse 1 says. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. What, what's the meaning of this one? Now, do the backtrack. So there were seven seals. On the seventh seal, God opened seven more trumpets. On the seventh seal, God opened the trumpets. Now, this is very interesting to say the least. The fifth, uh, tr the fifth seal, when it was opened, we saw that there were saints in heaven who were persecuted and who were slain, and they were asking for God for justice. And the response of God was, Six, uh, seal number six. Seal number six is an ominous image from heaven. The sun did not give its light. The moon turned to blood. The stars falling from the sky. It's like a warning. And then seal number seven, silence. So this is like, this is like a calm before the storm. This about a half an hour is a figuration or figurative for an approximation of time. There's really no exact amount of time. That's the idea here. About half an hour. And there was silence. What's interesting here is that this amount of time, the silence, is like a calm before the storm. What that means, what that means is that everything is going to get worse before everything is going to get better. So think about this you know, incoming hurricane, Category 4, Ian. Everything's quiet. Oh, yesterday, there was uh, panic buying on water and some supplies. But today, it's a little bit quiet. It's sunny, and it seems like he's not coming. But we know he's coming. Come Tuesday or Wednesday, he's coming. The seventh seal containing the seven trumpets is the most intense outpouring of God's wrath on earth. So what we say is that after Jesus ascended to heaven, persecution and tribulation already happened. But these last days... There will be an intense outpouring of God's wrath on earth. Revelation 8, verse, verses 2 and the following, it says, Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to him. 
And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and it was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense and the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Very interesting passage. What you have here is a summarized version of the last stage of the last days, the seven trumpets. If you look closer, it says that the angel offered incense with the prayer of the saints. So it, it's not that our prayers do not reach to God. We pray enough. We cry enough. And God hears every detail of those prayers. It's not that God doesn't care. He cares. He's able, but he's on a schedule. He's a timetable. And what we're saying here, again, is that everything must go worse before it gets better. This is the last stage of the last days. And true enough, in chapter 8, we were introduced to the seven trumpets. The seven trumpets is an image of announcing the wrath of God. Nowadays, it's, it's very hard to, to preach on the wrath of God. People will not listen. But the Bible does not lie. There is justice from God. I'm going to try to summarize to you the first four trumpets in a non-scary way. So the, the first four trumpets has something to do with hail, fire, and blood. That's the first trumpet. So think about the wildfires in California 100 times over. Hail, fire, and blood. And the result of that was the earth was, sorry, one-third of the earth was burned up. So I'm thinking, hmm, wildfires in California. Then the sea, second trumpet, then the sea turned like blood, killing third of sea creatures, including merchant ships. So I'm thinking, all my shrimps for my pasta will be gone, one-third. And it says, another one, the third trumpet, the earth, the third of the earth's water source gets poisoned. And you get the wormwood poisoning makes the water bitter. That means no more mineral water. One-third of our drinking water is gone. The fourth trumpet has something to do with the cosmic phenomenon of shortening daytime. One-third of daylight and the light uh, at night was taken away or disrupted. So think about a cosmic phenomenon or a prolonging of winter. So combine them together, the destruction of vegetation, the destruction of um, water supply, the destruction of seafood, and the disruption of seasons, which if I translate this, which means worldwide food and water shortage, long and freezing winter, and absolute chaos on the streets in every part of the world. And as if it's not yet enough, there are three more trumpets, because there are seven trump trumpets. So enter chapter 9 of Revelation. It says in Revelation 9.1, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw an altars, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and it was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. What's from the bottomless pit? Terrible creatures. Now forget about what, what they look. What's important is their mandate. Their mandate is not to seek and destroy. Their mandate is to seek and torment. Seek and torment. Seek and abuse. 
So I'm thinking of 400 years of the Israelites getting tormented, oppressed, abused for the very long time, 400 years. Yesterday, I had the privilege of um, watching a documentary show uh, in North Miami. It's about the martial law victims. And, and I was trying to reflect while I was watching, and, and they too, the victims of the martial law, those who survived, those who had experienced devastating experience because of the abuse, were also asking for justice. And probably the same people who are subjected to the trumpets are also asking for what's going to happen here. This is too much, too much abuse for us. But what's interesting here is that the, the trumpets will only be subjected to the people who do not have the seal or the mark of God. Now, last Sunday, we talked about the 144,000 people who will have the mark of God. These are the church, the people of God. These will have the mark. They will be spared from the trumpets. They will not be spared from persecution, but they will be spared from the torment of these creatures. Listen to verse 4 and 5. The creatures were said or were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. That's not you, so you can breathe. It's not us. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. I'm not sure about that. I have, was, I have been bitten by a bee. I'm not sure if it's the same. I have, I have had toothache before. Maybe it's the same. I don't know. Maybe, but this is torment. Anyone here has toothache? Toothache for days? I mean, it's, it's terrible. How, how much more will this be? This will be one of a kind, never seen. Then it comes, the sixth trumpet. The sixth trumpet is a plague resulting in the death of the third of the earth's population. Now, the current population of the world is about 8 billion people and counting. Considering if Eric will have family, then we will increase some more. 8 billion and counting. One-third of 8 billion is about 2.6 billion. Okay, I'm, I hope my math is okay. 2.6 billion. Imagine 2.6 billion dying in one day. This is the sixth trumpet. It's going to happen in one day. Now imagine 2.6 billion people, not with the M, with, with the B, dying as if they never existed in, in history. Now, let's put that in perspective. How, how many is 2.6 billion? Everybody in Canada right now, everybody in the U.S., everybody in South America, and because I don't like stinking tofu, everybody in China. I like biryani. It's, uh, India is 1.4, 1.5. So 2.6 is Canada, U.S., South America, and China. I mean, if we think about it, we're going to have funerals for months we're going to have supply chain issues, shortage of everything, economic, political issues. This is scary, to say the least. I can even begin to imagine the effect and the trauma or the amount of PTSD that it brings to those who were left behind. And you will probably assume that after all the plagues, after the six, uh, six trumpets, that people will start calling on God and, and the church attendance will skyrocket and the media will have series of talks about people repenting and going back to God. 
Answer is no. Surprisingly, no. Here's what it says in verse 20 to 21. The rest of the mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. This is the exact contrast to the God of Israel in Exodus chapter 2, the God who saw, remembered, heard, and knew and acted on it. The idols of the people that they worship, including the demons, cannot hear or walk or see. And it says in verse 21, nor did they repent of their murders or, or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. When I read this the first time, I was as flabbergasted as you. I cannot believe it. I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that the message of God about his wrath is so clear, and yet the people does not have the vocabulary for repentance. Why would people not acknowledge God and repent, knowing the fact that it's going to be the end of the world? Why is that? Now, to parents or to the new teachers who have difficult um, students, if you have raised a difficult child, this difficult child will have no fear, no remorse. They will not change their minds even when you, when you show threats and your shining black belt. I'd always say to my daughter, every time that she does not follow, I'm going to follow you. It's just a threat. I'm going to get my belt. Then, then she follows. But the people who were given this wrath did not repent, did not change, did not acknowledge. And th there's only one thing, only one person that I can think of going back to the 400 years. See, Pharaoh were given not one, not two, not three, but ten horrible plagues. To the point that he was threatened by God that his son will be killed if he does not acknowledge God. And still he did not. Pharaoh never acknowledged God, never surrendered, never bowed down his knees or switched his allegiance to Yahweh. Like a difficult child, he just sulked and waited for his chance to get even. The question is why? Why would people not repent in the face of these overwhelming odds of God's wrath? Here's what Jeremiah's diagnosis of human heart's condition. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. He said, the heart is hopelessly dark and deceitful, a puzzle that no one can figure out. It's dark and deceitful. Anyone watch the last uh, Batman here? It's dark. I mean, there's evil in there. If the human heart is corrupt, deceitful, sick, and definitely untrustworthy, why is the world's wisdom telling us to follow our heart? If the heart is deceitful, dark, and untrustworthy, why is the world's wisdom saying, follow your heart? When you're on the brink of making a major decision in life, why follow your heart when you know for the fact that your heart is deceitful? Now, one famous, let me put, uh, throw in this pop culture here. One famous American singer-songwriter named in 2019 by Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People popularized a song. It's entitled, Born This Way. The lyrics goes like this. My, I'm not going to sing it. Here's the lyrics. 
I'm gonna ask uh, Eric to sing it later. Oh, here, here's the lyrics. My mama told me when I was young, we were all born superstars. She rolled my hair and put my lipstick on in the glass of her boudoir, saying, there's nothing wrong with loving who you are, she said, cause he made you perfect, babe. So hold your head up high and you'll go far. Listen to me when I say I'm beautiful in my way, cause God makes no mistake. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Before you even say amen to that, Lady Gaga, in the spirit of transparency, admitted that her song was inspired by another song or by another artist by the name of Carl Bean. Carl Bean is an openly gay Motown and disco singer who established a church in Los Angeles. The name of the church is Unity Fellowship Church. And this church welcomes and supports gay, lesbian, transgender, African-Americans. He's the first and original who sang the song, I Was Born This Way, in 1977. Here's the lyrics. Yes, I'm gay. I ain't the fault. It's a fact. I was born this way. And I'm happy. I'm carefree. I'm gay. I was born this way. This is the inspiration to the song of Lady Gaga, I Was Born This Way. Let's not be naive. This song is about the human spirit. But the human heart is corrupt and deceitful. You cannot trust it. That's why there's no repentance even after the overwhelming fact of God's wrath. And I'm not harping on homosexuality. I'm on harping on deviant sexuality. All I have to do is to apply the same principle. I was born this way. Think about a pedophile, a grown man who loves to have sex with young boys. It's sick. I was born this way. Can you imagine people believing this lie? We were not born perfect. Nobody was born perfect. We are born with this sick heart. And that's why we need a savior. We cannot trust this lie. The truth is that we were born with a sick heart. And that's why instead of bowing to the lordship of Christ, people in Revelation chapter 9 invent their own God. We have created our own God. A God who does, doesn't demand accountability. A God who supports whatever lifestyle we choose. A God who wouldn't say no to every prayer request. A God that is tied to a bunch of strings that we manipulate with our hands. That's the God we want. An idol that we worship. That's the God people would rather have. Despite the obvious display of God's judgment and wrath. So Pharaoh would rather suffer than bow down to Yahweh. Pharaoh would rather extend the plagues to 10, even if it meant losing his own son. Because his, star, his heart is too stubborn. His knees are too stiff to bow down to God. Now, we aren't just talking about false gods or worshiping idols. He also mentioned about murder and sorceries. Now, sorceries is about magic of any kind. Now, we're not talking about Penn and Teller or David Blaine. Those are for entertainment. We're talking about real sorceries. Real magic that involves the power of demons. It's about the manipulation of the spiritual world with the aid of demonic powers. Now, people who already worship idols wouldn't care less even if they get involved in sorcery because people would do anything to get rich, to get ahead, to be famous. And then it mentions immorality and theft. Now look here. Immorality is always discussed in the Bible together with pornography, pornia. Uh, you read that from the epistles. The theft is always discussed 
with greed. So if you think about it, the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue, if you reflect this, the sins in the Ten Commandments, idolatry is breaking rules number one to four. You shall have no other gods. Do not worship idols. Murder is breaking rule number six. You shall not murder. It's not kill. It's murder. It's with intent. Immorality is breaking number rule number seven. You shall not commit adultery. Theft is breaking number rule number eight and number ten. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And you won't find these people inside the prison cells. You find these people in ordinary clothes, going to ordinary jobs, living their ordinary lives. And there's a high probability that these people who worship idols, who practice immorality, thievery, and greed, and whatnot, are most likely people that already go to church. Why did I say that? Because if you think about it, the sinners already knew they're sinners. Even if they do, do not admit them to your face, they are convicted that they are sinners. They're doing something wrong. But the religious people will not do that. This is the reason why Jesus used to hang out with tax collectors and prostitutes and the sinners. Because they already know. They're already convicted. But who are the people who always criticize Jesus? The Pharisees, the religious people, the Sadducees, the scribes, the religious leaders who profess to know God, the religious leaders who tithe and fast and pray and go to church. In one instance, the religious leaders complained to Jesus about his disciples. There's a certain protocol that the disciples must wash their hands before they eat. It's a certain protocol. It's religious ceremony. And what Jesus said is that this is not really important. What's important is the issue of the heart. But the Pharisees are too strict on rules. They're strict regarding protocols on food and what you can and you cannot eat. Or regarding fashion, what you can and you cannot wear or hairstyle. Or certain practices that had nothing to do with the heart issues. So Jesus answered them directly and he quoted Isaiah chapter 15. Listen to here, Isaiah, Matthew. He said, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. And Jesus calls them, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with the lips, but their heart is far from me? In vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men. He, the bottom line here is the heart issues. Hypocrisy is not specifically mentioned in the Ten Commandments. But truth and sincerity lie at the very heart of worship and love. See, you cannot love or worship God partially. Because God demands a love and devotion that surrenders the heart before the lips. To bend down the knee to God without the heart is what my daughter calls pretend. Pretend. It's play. And she, knew, she knows this game very well. So every day we'd always have tea parties in the air. We eat plastic chocolates. We pretend to be eating something. We pretend. See, hypocrisy is pretension. Hypocrisy is playing religion. Pretend is when people pray, play religion. Playing religion is when people go to church to pay lip service. 
playing religion is like being a long-term relationship with no real commitment. It's like staying in a house without paying the bills or emptying the trash. It's a person who can easily quit anytime when it's no longer convenient. Pretend. It's when people go to church because they have no other important schedules to do. It's when people wear the masks of piety but continue in their idolatry and thievery and immorality and theft and sorcery. What John is saying in Revelation is this, is that real disciples are people who follow Jesus who have bled and died and still held on to their faith. Because holding on to your faith is a very serious thing. They have no time to play religion. It's a serious thing. And we may probably call them fanatics. And you, we may call them any, anything we want. But when it comes to the issue of allegiance, loyalty, and servitude, there only have one answer to that. And that's Jesus. Jesus. Beloved, if there's anything about this message today, is that what we do while waiting matters. Jesus will be coming back soon. There's no definite time. But you see, there are warnings that was given to us. The father of the prodigal son waited for his son. He anticipated him, but he will not wait forever. There's a timetable. God has poured out his judgment. But he will not to wait forever. But know this. Wherever you are, in whatever condition you are, a song says, Jesus is calling. Are you hurting? Do you feel broken sometimes? Do you feel that you're overwhelmed by your sin? The encouragement of, of today by John in the book of Revelation chapters 8 and 9 is that while we still can, we can come to the altar because in the altar, we will find grace and forgiveness. I pray that you will make this prayer as well.